Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, how will Durham handle a disturbing spike in gun violence? And as public hearings on redistricting wrap up, our panel weighs in on our state's district lines and racial lines. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. The past year has brought a wave of new gun related violence to the city of Durham, and many have taken to the streets to protest. The most recent, a shooting near the campus of North Carolina Central University that resulted in the deaths of two young men. Neither one was connected with the university. It's led the chancellor, however, to join the chorus of groups demanding for a change. In 2020, 318 people were shot in Durham. Uh, that was nearly 70 percent more than the number shot in 2019. What do city leaders intend to do about this? I'd like to welcome to the forum District Attorney Satana DeBerry, Durham City Councilman Mark Anthony Middleton, and Attorney Harold Eustish of the Forsyth County GOP. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Councilman Middleton, how unique is this spike in violent crime to Durham, and do you feel safe in the city? Well, first, of course, I feel safe in the city. As, as an elected official, I'm, I'm a brand ambassador, so I've drunk all the Kool-Aid about Durham. It's the second best place to live in the country, uh, if you believe what you read. Uh, one of the highest per capita PhD rates in the country, best theater between Atlanta and New York. Durham is a fantastic place that people want to be, and I feel extremely safe. And that's not just because I'm a ninja. Uh, I'm safe because it's a safe place. Uh, and no, it's not unique uh, to Durham. Uh, nationwide, uh, violent crime and, and gun violence is up. I do want to just clarify one statistic. Uh, you mentioned 2020. We're in 2021, and the last time our police reported statistics to us, gun incidents and the number of people shot in Durham are actually down from this time last year. However, the fatalities are about 37% higher, so more people are dying from their injuries this year. It's still a big year. issue, though, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. No, your, your primer was, was, was spot on. It's, it's a big issue, uh, and it's a tale of two cities. It exists right next to our narrative of excellence. We have, a, we have an issue with gun violence in Durham. Absolutely. And Harold, let me ask you, what do you think has contributed to this disturbing uh, increase or at least the, the, the large volume and also the death rate? How much of it do you attribute possibly to the p pandemic? Well, I think some of it's part of, the, part of the pandemic and some of it's kind of what happened in the last couple years around policing. I think um, the interim police chief has kind of spoke about this in Durham about how, you know, they've had a problem retaining officers. There have been a lot of officers that left. It's sort of an employment problem there. And I think, you know, when you don't have as many officers patrolling, it's taking longer for officers to respond to 911 calls. You know, you, you, you kind of have a safety issue there. And I think that's not unique to Durham. I think that's that problem is happening all over the state and the country. Um, so I think it, it kind of goes hand in hand with some of the problems we've had around retaining police officers for a myriad of reasons, um, be it you know, officers wanted to leave because of COVID, because of mandates or other things. You know, um, I don't claim to know all the reasons, but that has been an issue. But I do think Durham's a good city. I mean, I spent two years of high school there at North Carolina Science and Math. I like the city a lot. Um, it's, a, it's a great place, but I think it's, it's, it's kind of like the other mid-sized cities in North Carolina, Winston-Salem and Greensboro. We just, it's a, it's a challenge for, for all of them. 
Absolutely. Well, you mentioned policing and uh, D.A. DeBerry in order to cope with the pandemic and overcrowding. Um, one of the things that your office began was uh, a pretrial release policy to try to keep uh, individuals with lower level offenses out of jail. And I want to know how has this helped? And also, has there been uh, an increased need for policing? Uh, thanks, Deborah. Like uh, Councilman Middleton, I am a big fan of the Bull City. You know, I have children who go to school there. So it is really important to me that we're a safe place to be. Um, and my office actually started this pretrial release policy pre-pandemic so that we were really using our limited resources in the detention center to focus on people who were a danger to themselves and others. Um, over the pandemic, that took on a new urgency because anytime you have people in a congregate care setting, um, they are much more challenged uh, by, by COVID and any type of communicable disease. And so we've worked as a community um, to make sure that we are, we are only detaining those people um, who are a danger and that low-level offenders um, will come, are given a bond and are assured that they come to court. Is the public good with this? Are they concerned that there are more folks out who may need to still be in jail, and would this be contributing to the uptick in violence? Yeah, there is absolutely no indication that it has contributed at all to any violence. Again, what we're talking about is people who are accused of misdemeanors or crimes that do not involve a human victim. Um, people who have been accused of shooting or homicide certainly are detained in the Durham County Jail. Well, um, it's, it's certainly all about, you know, right now making things safer. And Councilman Middleton, you attempted to get uh, a gunshot surveillance uh, equipment into the city. It had failed. Can you talk about what happened there? Sure. Well, first, first let, me, let me say in response to my, my good brother uh, and, and friend Harold, I don't know that the, a fully staffed police department, that there's a correlation between lower gun violence and a, a police department that 100% staffing. If you look around the country, cities that aren't having an issue with staffing with police, I mean, gun violence is, is an American problem. We're the most heavily armed society on the face of the planet. There's more guns than people here, and there's no indication that we have higher degrees of, of mental illness in America either. So I, I just want to say that. Um, yes, I did uh, try and, and get a, uh, an experimental deployment of shot spotter. Uh, it's gunshot detection more so than surveillance. Part of the issue with the debate is that the uh, technology was conflated with over-policing uh, and a big brother syndrome uh, by many folk. I think the, the debate was hijacked. When I first actually proposed it, it had nothing to do with violent crime. It had to do with the quality of life issue of unreported gunfire, which we have children jumping in bathtubs at night when it's not bath time. Uh, so as part of a comprehensive, multifaceted group of things that I propose to, uh, to address gun violence in a city that has a, a demonstrated affinity for pilots, you know, I believe in science. I recommended a pilot to get the data to see if it could perhaps help in a comprehensive strategy, and I believe the debate got um, hijacked. Interestingly enough, and I'll put a fine point here, many of the people that uh, oppose ShotSpotter, um, we have video cameras going into all of our public housing complexes around the city. The internationally recognized symbol of surveillance is a video camera. So we won't try technology that could potentially save first responders to save people's lives, but we will spend money to get high-resolution videos of our victimization to go viral the next morning. Uh, I think we made the wrong decision. Well, the mayor has um, proposed several different solutions, and when something like this happens, of course, people want to go straight to gun control. Harold, how much is gun control something that can be 
uh, maintained or increased and effective in preventing some of these violent crimes? I don't think it's effective at all. I think what gun control essentially means is taking, you know, the guns away from law-abiding citizens. Um, I think what we know is that a lot of the, the gun violence and the crimes, uh, the guns that are used in these types of crimes are, are stolen weapons, are weapons that are on the street and not registered. And so, uh, you know, and I say this as a former prosecutor, I say this living in the world of criminal defense now, I, that's what I do. And, and you know, it, I, I think the, the better way to do this is recruiting police officers you know, looking at schools like North Carolina Central and Shaw and other you know, schools in the area and saying, how do we incentivize and compel our best and brightest young people, particularly black folks, to want to be police officers in cities like Durham, in cities like Winston-Salem, instead of having police officers in these cities that come from the outside counties? And I think that's just a big problem in a lot of these cities. So, you know, not, not that those officers can't do a good job, but it would be good to have police officers that, that look like the community. And I think, um, and so instead of vilifying officers, I think part of the, part of the, um, the solution is, is, is not gun control, but really um, getting our police departments uh, in, a better, in a better way, yeah. DA DeBerry, how about that solution? Um, more police offers, officers from the community, <laughs> in communities, and gun control. What are your thoughts on those solutions and other solutions like root causes? Yeah, I don't think lack of police patrols is our problem. Um, you know, we really know what causes gun violence. In Durham at Duke University, um, we have Phil Cook, who is a worldwide expert on gun violence. We know how to change things. We just lack the political will to do it. Um, research shows that we can identify somebody who is going to be involved as either a shooter or a victim in the third grade. That's not about police. That's about providing economic opportunity to communities. That's about kids having opportunities outside of where they live. It's about neighborhoods that feel safe to the people who live in those neighborhoods. You know, we talk a lot about black people as defendants. Uh, the dirty little secret of the criminal justice system is that black people are also the victims. Mm -hmm. And really, that we want everybody deserves to be safe. And one of the things that makes you safe is living in a community where you have opportunity, freedom of mobility, um, and the ability to do better. It's not necessarily about having more police patrolling. Um, I think we live in a community like Durham that we have black people in power. We, um, our former police chief was black. Our new police chief is a black woman. And um, so we are addressing those type of issues. I think now we are at a much more nuanced place where we really need to look about what we're providing to the people in our community as they grow up. And everybody needs to be involved in uh, identifying those solutions and being part of the solution themselves. Thank you. Over the past week, public hearings wrapped up on how North Carolinians' district maps will be drawn and where the lines will fall. Following the 2020 census, North Carolina gained a seat, giving our state 14 total. Early drafts of maps indicate that we could end up with anywhere from 9 to 11 Republican delegates and 3 to 5 Democrats. Some proposed maps are more evenly split, but we do know that Republicans hold the majority right now, and Governor Cooper has no veto power in this vote. Councilman Middleton, what are your thoughts on the process and the resulting maps so far? You know, some time ago, a judge on the Fourth Circuit said that our maps in North Carolina were drawn with surgical precision uh, to disenfranchise uh, black folk uh, in this state, uh, whom I'd argue with the federal judge. 
Um, we, you know, these lines are drawn, and this is why we uh, impress the importance or stress the importance of local elections. We tend to focus at the presidential level and national level, but at our state legislature uh, and local elections, that's where our lines are drawn uh, for these maps. Um, I think the math is compelling uh, to us, and, and what's going on really here is uh, some of my friends uh, recognize the, the impact of the math of demographics. Uh, America is becoming more brown uh, uh, and less white. Uh, and there's been a backlash against that and, and the, an attempt to codify that backlash into how we draw our maps. Um, I think we have to be mindful that uh, North Carolina is, is, a, is a state that's browning itself um, and that our maps need to be reflective uh, of folk. And, and, you know, there are some things, there are some things that are specifically troubling to me uh, with some of my friends on the other side of the aisle. And Harold and I have discussed this before about this intentional uh, attempt, whether it's racially motivated or not, the impact, the end result seems to be uh, skewed towards disenfranchising and suppressing uh, black and brown voters in the state, and it's very troubling. Well, let me get your thoughts on that, Harold. You know, he's, uh, Tony, Tony's talked about the browning of North Carolina, but what would you say about the red and blue kind of aspect of North Carolina? Some say we're purple, but, you know, where really are we? And how does that play with the browning of our state? Well, here's where we are. You know, there's this notion that because the presidential elections in North Carolina are pretty close, they're 50 50, um, essentially. Uh, that, you know, that our congressional line should be 50-50, meaning seven and seven. The problem isn't the, the purple state or the browning of the North Carolina. The problem is that there are 100 counties in North Carolina, and 80, over 80 of them are red. And so when you draw maps, that they're drawn by geographic region. And the courts have said that we have to keep communities whole and, uh, and keep communities of interest whole. And so when you attempt to do that, what you end up having, you end up having is the maps, you know, that the state legislature has put out. These maps are put out without taking race into account, without taking party into account, and trying to keep communities whole. And that's what the state legislature has done. This is not about disenfranchising minority voters at all. You know, I think that I think that the the people on the left they want, you know, it, that's always the argument, right? If they don't get their way, it's well, it must be some sort of racial intent. It's not. Uh, I think that. You know these these maps are drawn fairly, um, and you're in. In fact, there was a professor at uh, Western Carolina who said we challenged his students to draw a seven-seven map in North Carolina, and they couldn't do it without gerrymandering. They can't. I mean, well, it, it's. It, there's yeah. racial intent, and then there's racial effect. So sometimes it's not about your intention, but it's about the effect of of the decisions. And you know, you're talking about the majority of our counties who that are red, but those blue counties are densely populated. Right. So you know, there, there, there's a balance to be struck there, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that balance. I think, but part of the issue is if we don't, ha if we're going to have these maps that have these sort of snake districts, like the, the old 12th district used to be, which was drawn on racial lines, right? And, and so if we're going to have, if we're not going to, if we're going to get away from having those types of districts, then we're going to have these districts, like the maps that we have now, that kind of keep these areas whole. And we're going to have districts that, you know, are going to have seven or eight counties in them that are red. That's just sort of unavoidable based on the geography. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about race in a second, but I want to get your feedback on this, D.A. DeBerry. Your thoughts on how these maps are drawn? 
Well, to say that anything in the United States does not have racial intent is to forget the whole history of the United States and certainly to forget the history of us as a southern state. Um, you know, I've lived in Durham County now for two decades. Um, I've been in three congressional districts. Um, all, not, the only thing that hasn't changed in those 20 years is uh, me being black. And so it is very clear that um, these that redistricting maps are being created across the country, not just in North Carolina, um, but to retain the power of a certain group of people. I think it's important to understand, and I think Deborah, you brought this up, is that uh, something like 70% of North Carolinians now live in an urban county, um, and the population is shifting. And so we should represent where the population is, not necessarily artificial geographic boundaries um, creating communities of interest, as Attorney Eustace said. Well, there's more to be talked about on this subject. We are talking about redistricting, and an issue that is in play is the idea of racial polarization. Earlier in the year, before maps were drawn, GOP leaders adopted some rules of play. One of them was that racial data could not be used as a determinant in drawing the lines. Makes sense, right? Well, that rule was based on the belief that voters don't vote on candidates according to the race of the candidate. This local rule runs counter to a long-standing U.S. policy that requires the purposeful drawing of majority-minority districts or districts where a racial minority group or groups comprise a majority of the district's total population in order to ensure a certain number of seats for black politicians. Here in North Carolina, four out of every 10 voters are non-white. Only two districts have black representatives, G.K. Butterfield in District 1 and Alma Adams in District 12. Both districts are majority-minority drawn districts. Councilman Middleton, what is the difference between using racial data to draw district lines that could ensure that there's some black representation or minority representation uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives and illegal racial gerrymandering? It's a difference between using a knife as a surgeon or as a serial killer. Uh, one is to repair. Uh, one is to do harm. Uh, you know, the... the and let, let, let's, let's be clear. The head of, of the party that many of my friends are in, the GLP party, started his career... Uh, with a racist lie and is ending his career by suggesting that the American electorate system is, is tainted, that, that uh, an election was stolen. Uh, and much of that is being done on the, the black, back uh, minority, black and brown people uh, in this country. And I say to my friends all the time, you know, on the other side of the aisle, it's highly more likely that I voted for many more white people than you have black people uh, in the course of my career. Unscientific, but, but I'm certain that that's the case. Um, yeah, so, so the notion that uh, to repair is now the harm, and, and to fix the harm is somehow doing further harm, is it, part of the, the, the psychoses of racism, of systemic racism in this country, where, where black is white and math isn't math anymore. Apparently, math is now part of critical race theory, so we can't talk about uh, the fact that, you know, elections were won and, and math still works and numbers are numbers. Um, so I'm, I'm deeply concerned by it. I'm deeply concerned by it, and I hope that uh, my friends on the other side will take their party back which has become unrecognizable. Well, Harold, let's get your feedback on that. Seems like well, I think first, yeah, first uh, we'll talk about how we got here about as far as race being taken into account with redistricting. Well, the issue is that the court said, because of what uh, Councilman Middleton sort of brought up in the last segment, 
uh, about you know surgical precision, the court said, well, take race out, take race out of it. And that was in response to what some of the folks in the Democratic Party wanted. So that, that's why that's happened. Two, I take, I take an issue with, um, with, you know, some in the other party saying that, you know, uh, the GOP won't vote for blacks or, or that, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't understand that. The reality in North Carolina is the Republican, and in the South, the Republican Party has been better at putting uh, black people in positions of power than the Democrat Party, without question. We look at our first lieutenant governor who won a primary against eight white people, you know, in in North Carolina. He won that primary. We look at uh, South Carolina, has Senator Tim Scott uh, won a statewide election. We look at Kentucky and Daniel Cameron, who won a statewide election. And then we look at North Carolina and say, the Democratic Party hasn't had, you know, a black senator, hasn't had a black governor, hasn't had a black attorney general. So all these, these folks, you, know, you talk about 40% of the state, and really 60% of Democrats being voters of color, well, well, where, what's the show for it? I mean, it, it's perplexing to me that this, you know, this, this folks just keep voting over and over. And as, as, as Councilman Milton said, for white candidates. Is this about skin color, though, or like about principles folks. in policies? Uh, Councilman Middleton, you want to jump yeah, I'm, in? I'm sorry. I, I never said that the GOP doesn't elect black folk. I said that just unscientifically. I'm sure that I voted for more white people than individual members of GOP have voted for black people over the course of their voting life. And there's all kinds of reasons for that, but I never suggested that the GOP does not elect black people. I have friends of the GOP that are uh, elected officials. Well, in terms of looking out for the interests black. of minority communities, does it matter what the skin color of the candidate is? Let me get your thoughts on this, D.A. DeBerry. Well, I think what matters is the experience um, of that candidate. And there's certain experiences that certainly we on this panel share as black people um, that white people do not share in this country. That does not mean that uh, a white candidate cannot look out for the interests of minority people. It just means that we want a we are a diverse electorate and we should be represented by a diverse group of people. Um, and I think that is always what uh, certainly I believe, and I think that is what most black, most black Americans believe, is we don't all agree on anything, right? The three of us on this panel, uh, you know, Councilman Middleton and I are very good friends and very much aligned, and we can probably find many, many ways in which we disagree. Um, and so I think better governance comes from having a diverse group of people making the decisions. And when you consider the, the, dem the demographics of North Carolina, it is browning. There are, there's a significant increase in the number of Latino uh, residents here in our state, but there's, not, there's only one uh, Latino representative in our legislature. Councilman Middleton? Oh, precisely. Uh, and, and listen, the math is compelling, and, and, and our friends uh, in the other party, they, they read demographical trends and they understand what's happening. And, and power is a very uh, appealing and addictive drug. And, and we've seen a concerted, systemic, scientific effort, uh, pseudoscientific effort, uh, to suppress that and disenfranchise. Why would a legislature want the power to overturn uh, uh, an election or the power to review uh, um, elections that have been certified and recertified uh, and, and validated by folk even in their own party that say that they're, they're valid. Why, why would you want that power? What, what are you expecting? What are you anticipating? What are you setting the board up for? It is clear. Uh, it is regressive. Uh, it is a threat, an imminent threat to the very fabric of our democracy. 
uh, and we need to be on guard as we move forward. Harold, well, how would you respond to that? I respond to that by saying, you know, part of um, the reason that these sorry, uh, that okay. state legislatures okay. need to look at, um, um, you know, these elections is because we've had a board of elections in North Carolina and Pennsylvania and other states that usurped the legislature, that usurped the legislature, went around the legislature and created laws at the 11th hour, especially in 2020, and changed the voting laws while people are voting. There was and a so pandemic in place, stuff. and so there was unique need to make some changes. There's also no evidence, really, that that happened. Well, well that, that absolutely happened in North Carolina. Without question, laws were changed. It's uncontrovertible that laws were changed by the Board of Elections without, without the state legislature. That happened. Ergo I mean, that what? A fact. Ergo now, what? Were votes changed? Is, well, the issue is the issue is the laws were changed, and so what 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 the what the Republicans are saying is if laws are going to be changed unconstitutionally without the state legislature, because the state legislature controls voting, um, even they're elected by the people, and that's our democracy. Then then we've got to make sure that the people, the voice of the people, who is the state legislature, have that voice, and well, it's the, not you know state board of elections usurping. Them. The, the unconstitutionality of these changes is debatable. Um, the election was fair and it was legal. The count was legal. Um, D.A. DeBerry, you know, when we are looking at how district lines are drawn and representation throughout the state, where do you think race should play in terms of policies for drawing these lines? Well, you know, I have to agree with Councilman Middleton that you know, to now, again, say that race does not matter in the United States um, completely ignores our history. I think race plays a role. I think there is a way that we can draw maps that is fair, that represents every one of the... Uh, the none of this is um, unknown. Plaintiffs in the redistricting case provided an expert who did computer-generated maps um, that met all of the requirements set out by the court. So it's not like we don't know how to do this. We do. And this, com this continuing misinformation about votes being stolen or people not voting and where they're supposed to vote is to take away from the facts that, that we know how to do this. And we just, again, don't have the political will to do it. D.A. Satana DeBerry, Harold Eustish, Councilman Mark Anthony Middleton, thank you so much for coming out and being a part of today's program. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank today's guests, and we invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. Quality public television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.